Do you like the TV series Tales from the Crypt? Are you interested in full episode and movie reviews from Tales from the Crypt? This podcast is for you. The Good Evening Kitties podcast, where I, Melissa, your ghostess with the mostess, recap every episode with special guests and bonus horror movie reviews. The Good Evening Kitties podcast can be found on most podcast platforms. Check it out today. And I'm just here to say, this is a lit episode. No Farmer Dave. Dave is tending the farm, and I'm just hanging out at the old radio station, the old abandoned radio station that we record these shows at, or I do my half at. Dave comes in here once in a while, waters the plants, because I just kill plants. But you didn't come here to talk to me. You came here to talk, uh, listen to some natural disaster stuff. Some, uh, we're we're doing some... uh, not fictional stuff. Where what's that? St- what do they call it when it's not fictional? Um. Anyway, here we go with that. Enough of me trying to remember things. If you have any questions, if you want to send us artwork, if you want to be on the show, if anything, you know, contact us. Uh, we've got a form at pgttcm.com, and contact us. Let us know what you've been thinking about the show. We've missed you. Some of you have missed us, and you've let us know, and we're back. So, here we go. Also, this show's going to be far less automated uh, for the time being, just because of the fact that I forgot how much I liked actually doing these little parts, as opposed to being like, all right, well, I've got Black Clock Audio Tales all programmed up for the month. All I have to do is slap it together and slowly load it in. And yeah, I mean, it was really quick to get stuff done and then I wouldn't have to think about it and I could work on a bunch of other projects, but hey, here we go. By Alan Kelly, June 30th, 2016, Churchill Falls, Labrador. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby, Chapter 2. Up from the sea I sprang, O Voyager, ere Aphrodite rose from out its foam. I am a band unresting wanderer doomed o'er the surface of the deep to roam. Without being aged or whelmed with days, the end of being is my only dream. I trod the earth ere man's ephemeral race, and onward flee long as yon sun shall beam, ever, forever, here and wherever. Turneth the earth, must I course, forever. The phenomena of climate and seasons are too familiar to need a special comment or description. 
they are dependent in the first place upon the annual journey of the Earth about the Sun. The inclination of the Earth's axis to its orbit and the distance of any particular region in question from the equator. But the changes thus constantly made are greatly modified by other factors. Chief among these agencies are the form and extent of their continents, their position relative to each other and the water areas, and the currents of the air and sea. Men usually identify climate with atmospheric conditions. A warm atmosphere is for them the whole of a warm climate. It is really but one of its factors, at most. It is often to be considered as a result, rather than a cause. On lofty plateaus or in mountainous regions, the heat is not oppressive, even in the tropics, but here the moderate temperature is due to the elevation. France is as far north as Labrador, but there is no similarity whatever in the climatic conditions, as there should be, were climate dependent only on the heating of the local atmosphere by the rays of the sun. Who would think of instituting a comparison of sunny Rome or Madrid with the city of New York? Yet, the three are nearly on the same parallel, Rome furthest north. So, there is little resemblance between the warmth of sunny Florida and the scorching heat of the Sahara, or between the climates in those portions of our own Pacific and Atlantic coasts that lie between the same parallels. So, we find that though there is a general relation between the climate of a region and its distance from the equator, there are many other conditions to be considered. First, let us note atmospheric currents and disturbances. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and no man knoweth whence it cometh, or whither it goeth. The world do move. The illustration so full of meaning two thousand years since has lost much of its force. The truth of yesterday is the error of today. The fact of today may be the fantasy of tomorrow. So it has come to pass that in our day the origin and laws of air currents are believed to be as well understood as those of any other force in nature. Yet scientific theorists are, after all, divided on not a few points. Two general classes of winds are recognized, the constant and variable. Constant winds are those that blow all the year in the same direction. The beautiful concept of Kingsley in the preceding chapter contains the leading points of our knowledge concerning them. All the various phenomena of air currents are dependent upon one unchanging law. The gaseous bodies, and all but two others, always greatly expand under the influence of heat. There are two noted partial exceptions. One of these prevents our globe from becoming a complete iceberg, and is as important as the law itself. Iron expands till its melting point, but in its liquid state it occupies less space than when solid. Water contracts under the influence of cold until the temperature of 39 degrees is reached. After that, it expands and when frozen occupies about one-eighth more space than before. This wise provision of the Creator is second to none in importance as regard its influence upon the climate of the earth at large. Had it been otherwise, did ice sink instead of float, our rivers and seas would in time become solid masses of ice, for water is so poor a conductor of heat that its undercurrents warm very slowly. Ask anyone who plunges into a lake in midsummer, they often find the water warm at the surface and of almost icy coldness a short distance beneath. The great polar current comes down from Baffin's Bay and off the coast of Newfoundland it plunges beneath the warm, lighter current of the Gulf Stream, but it is not warmed by it. Registering thermometers detect its icy coldness almost unchanged in the realms of the tropics far beneath the surface. 
Note some simple illustrations of the expansive force of freezing water. Every housewife knows that a bottle left full of water will burst when the water freezes. The same power is shown in the gradual disintegration of rocks by alternate freezing and thawing. Water freezing in the crevices bursts off small particles or even large fragments so that rocks long exposed to the weather crumble more or less. Everyone is familiar with the appearance presented by steep clay banks in late winter and early spring of ragged masses and fragments ready to fall at any time. Still another instance of this destructive power is shown in the killing of vegetation by freezing. Plants are built of myriads of tiny cells. The moisture within freezes and bursts the cell walls, destroying the plant life. Certain plants have cells more elastic than others, which in consequence are not destroyed by freezing. But as an expanded cell does not readily shrink to its former size, subsequent freezings when the cell contains more water than before may finally destroy it. So wheat is winter killed by too frequent freezing. So globes of steel may be burst by this force. To show the poor qualities of water as a conductor of heat, take a long glass tube and fill with water, then put a piece of ice in one end. The water at the other end may now be brought to the boiling point by means of the flame of a lamp. Here the ice at the other end is melted. Everyone is familiar with the fact that heated air rises, but not all inquire why it does so. Take a football or bladder and partially inflate it, then hold it near a hot fire, and it may be swollen almost to bursting. Now there is no more air in it than before, and if it be laid in a cold place, it will shrink to its first inflation. This shows how great is the expansive power of heat on the atmosphere. The same weight occupying a much larger bulk, we perceive that the heated air is much lighter and must rise. This then is the cause of what are known as constant winds. As the earth revolves on its axis, the air is unequally heated, that nearest the equator becoming the warmest in consequence of it receiving the most direct rays. Here then, the air rises most rapidly, while the cooler air to the north or south must flow southward or northward to fill the vacuum. Now, the earth turning on its axis from west to east whirls the northward and southward currents to the westward, so that they appear to blow from the northeast and southeast. The result of this loss of direction is gradual, so that when first perceptible, they are almost from a due northerly or southerly direction. As they near the equator, they are more rapid and turn more decidedly to the west, never becoming violent, however, rarely exceeding 15 to 18 miles per hour. It would appear that at the point where these meet each other or come in contact with the ascending warm current, there must be a region of calm or light variable winds and occasional tempests. Such, in fact, is the case. This belt is from 280 to 400 miles in width and lies along the thermal equator, or line of greatest average heat. This is not the same as the Earth's equator, properly so called, for as the land has greater capacity for absorbing and retaining heat than the sea, and as most of the land lies in the northern hemisphere, it is evident the highest mean temperature must be north of the equator. So this belt of calm must lie in the same region, and in fact, in the Atlantic Ocean, it lies between 3 and 9 degrees north latitude, and in the Pacific, between 4 and 8 degrees. As the sun travels northward during the first half of the year, this region of calms shifts slightly, also so as to always nearly coincide with the belt of the greatest mean heat. At first sight, it appears curious that the motion of the earth should deflect these winds to the west. 
it would appear that the Earth, atmosphere and all, must revolve as a unit about its axis. Else, if the atmosphere lose time, its speed to the westward should be constantly accelerated and long ago should have reached a velocity that would shake the mountains themselves while in fact there is no variation perceptible. It should be remembered that at the equator the Earth is about 24,000 miles in circumference and as one complete revolution is made every 24 hours, a point on the equator is carried eastward at the rate of 1,000 miles an hour. But if a circle be drawn around the Earth parallel to the equator, at some distance from it, it is at once seen that any object in this circle, having a shorter, shorter distance to traverse, is carried eastward at a slower rate, so that a point only a few yards from either pole must necessarily advance but a few feet per hour. So then, a body of air moving from either pole toward the equator must needs advance very slowly if the friction of the upper reverse currents and of the surface of the globe are to have an opportunity to overcome its relative inertia and give it the same velocity as that of any point over which it may pass. Now in the case of these constant winds, the inertia is very nearly overcome as they start from a circle in which the velocity to the eastward is about 750 miles per hour. If the inertia were fully overcome, there would be no perceptible wind. As the velocity is actually but 15 to 18 miles per hour, it appears that the friction encountered actually destroys from 13 14th to 15 16 of the inertia. Hence, we find these constant air currents toward the west are, in reality, the result of the Earth carrying any object on its surface a little more rapidly than the atmosphere moves, so that these winds are precisely the same in principle as the well-known fact that when you run rapidly in still air, so-called, it seems that the wind is blowing directly in your face. In like manner, it appears that a wind from the west to east is merely an air current moving a little more rapidly than the Earth, than the earth revolves at that point. The relative difference between the velocity of air currents must vary greatly. For a violent easterly or westerly wind, very near the poles may equal or even exceed the speed of the rotation at that point. While the most violent tropical storms average between 1 20th and 1 8th of the local rotation, the latter is not often exceeded. But whatever the relation of the respective velocities, it is clear that the velocity of the wind in general must depend largely on the amount of air abnormally heated and upon the rapidity with which it is heated. So men have come to recognize that a period of unusually oppressive heat forebodes a storm of some sort, but few regard the unusual warmth as a reason for the storm. They are linked, in the popular mind, as antecedent and consequent, rather than as cause and effect. These constant winds near the equator have been named trade winds, because of their importance to commerce. Unknown before the first voyage of Columbus, he filled the minds of his crew with fear that they could never return home if the wind blew always in one direction. The same gentle wind bore Magellan in his voyage around the world and caused him to give the name of the Pacific, or Peaceful, to the great ocean on our west. And the same steady breezes that made the fortune of many a noble galleon in the days when Peru was in Ophir, Mexico and El Dorado, in the Philippine Isles at Tarshish, where they took shipping for the distant land of gold. Owing to the fact that the continents intercept the regular trades by reason of their elevation and irregular conformation, and also because of their much greater specific heat, whereby they set in motion many other local currents, 
The trades are found to begin only a considerable distance to the west of the continents. Yet, the influence of the trades is sufficient to make easterly winds the prevailing ones on the great inland plains, as in the Sahara, Arabia, southern Siberia, and portions of North and South America. It is clear that other nearly constant currents must exit, must exist, to supply the vacuum that would otherwise be caused by the trades. These are found to the south and north of the trade belts, and, as might be expected, blow nearly in the opposite direction, being descending currents, while the trades, as before stated, are ascending. The column of hot air from the equator starts toward the poles above the trades, while a polar current sets in toward the equator, but as the amount of air displaced at the equator is by far the greatest, much of it can, of course, never reach the poles. On meeting the polar current, the two partially mingle and descend, forming what is called the return trade. This blows, most of the year, to the southeast, the equatorial current prevailing and coming from a region whose easterly rotation is more rapid. At certain seasons of the year, however, the polar current prevails to some extent, though not sufficiently to overcome the eastward trend. The wind in this belt blows alternately to the southeast and the northeast. Between the region of trades and alternating winds is a belt, on either side of the equator, of calms and variable winds, which shift northward or southward, parallel to the belt of calms between the trades. These two zones, however, are much less clearly defined than the great central one, and are not liable to such extraordinary disturbances. Such is the great constant wind, with its dependence. So long as the sun has warmed the earth, it has hurried on its course, subject to unceasing law, and destined to cease only when the heavens and the earth shall pass away, and chaos or annihilation shall end the things that be. A wandering Jew of the atmosphere, it flies ever onward, bearing the merchant to his port, and the rain cloud to the land, ever and anon, desolating the isles with its bursts of fury, then resuming its restless course like the remorseful celestial. End of chapter two. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Hope you've been enjoying listening to this uh, nonfiction about uh, natural disasters. I mean, I, I find it interesting. People's uh, previous uh, thoughts and feelings on on, on, on natural disasters. Something, uh, best way, uh, like, closest thing we can even, like, compare, like, the Cthulhu mythos in some ways is, like, natural disasters. You know, Cthulhu is described as a walking mountain, or, or what we call Cthulhu, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not 100% sure that the, the giant uh, dragon octopus man thing is Cthulhu and not just simply uh, some sort of security device to keep people from getting deep inside of Ralier to the actual thing that is Cthulhu. I mean, come on. Uh, Cthulhu doesn't even have to be a physical entity. I think, I think, uh, anyway, this isn't People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos proper. This is People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos Literature Club. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day and your life while you have it. PGTTCM.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, your mom.